0: The United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit is now in session Good morning ladies and gentlemen, this is the time set for argument to rehearing on Bonk and Duncan versus Bonta
1: And we will hear from the state Good morning and may it please the court, Sam Siegel on behalf of the Attorney General With the court's permission, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal since 2000, California has restricted the manufacture, sale, and importation of large capacity magazines, which are magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds. And in 2016, California's legislature and its voters strengthened that law by prohibiting the possession of those magazines. The district court below Recording permanently progress. destroyed every aspect of California's LCM law both the 2016 restriction on possession as well as those provisions that have been in place for decades. That ruling is incorrect and should be reversed. California adopted its LCM restriction to reduce the frequency and lethality of mass shootings, which have become all too common in recent years. And California is not alone. Nine other states, as well as the District of Columbia and cities across the country, have adopted similar laws. And every single law has withstood a Second Amendment challenge. Indeed, six other courts of appeals have carefully applied the Second Amendment principles articulated in Heller to laws like California's, and each one has upheld those laws, primarily because they left open alternative means for self-defense and because they were reasonably fit to the government's compelling public safety interests. Now, plaintiffs here urge this court to break with that uniform body of authority with respect to both methodology and result but there's no basis in precedent or the record in this case for doing so. Heller holds that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms, but it also makes clear that states may adopt a wide variety of reasonable gun safety regulations. And California's LCM restriction is one such measure. Uncontroverted record evidence demonstrates that when LCMs are used in mass shootings, the number of people injured and killed is greater than when they're not. The record also demonstrates that LCMs are used at a disproportionate rate in the murder of law enforcement. It establishes that states that have adopted LCM restrictions like California's have seen a lower rate of mass shootings than those that have not. And it confirms that individuals rarely fire more than 10 rounds in self-defense. And if gun owners in California ever need to fire additional rounds, they may do so by using another gun or reloading with a fresh magazine. Because California's LCM restriction imposes at most a minor burden on the individual right to bear arms for self-defense, and because it is reasonably fit to the state's interests in reducing the frequency and lethality of mass shootings and in protecting our police officers, it is not one of the policy choices that the Second Amendment takes off the table. Chief Judge Thomas, I welcome the court's questions.
0: Yes, Judge Graber has the first question.
2: I don't have any questions. Thank you.
0: Judge Paez.
3: Yes. Uh, Mr. Siegel, the the, uh, plaintiffs in the district court um, focused a lot on the ownership and widespread uh, use of LCMs across the country. And I'm just kind of curious what the state's position would be on the significance of that data to our analysis of whether California's LCM's restriction comports with the Second Amendment and how we should utilize that data uh, in our analysis
1: Well, Your Honor, when this court has analyzed other laws that restrict access to certain types of weapons, it hasn't embraced my friend's common use test as the beginning and end of the constitutional analysis. Now, this court in FIAC and other courts of appeals that have looked at LCM restrictions have looked at the number of LCMs in circulations at step one of the analysis, at least one of the inquiries that it makes at step one in the analysis. But even a conclusion that LCMs are common in society, and even if this court were to assume that they're typically possessed for lawful purposes, at most that gets us to step two of the analysis, where the court has asked in FIAC and other cases whether our law imposes a severe burden on an individual's right to use a firearm for self-defense, or put it a little bit differently, whether the law leaves open alternative means for self-defense. And because our law leaves open ample alternative means for self-defense, The most demanding standard of scrutiny that can be applied is intermediate scrutiny.
3: Let me add, so in your view, this information has no relevancy to our analysis, or is it just background information, or,
1: or what? Your Honor, it's not that it's irrelevant. As I mentioned, I think the court can and has looked to it at the first step in the analysis. But our position is that this court has not embraced my friend's common use test, again, as the beginning and end of the constitutional analysis, that the only thing the court has to do is look and see whether or not there's a sufficient number of LCMs and whether or not they're typically used for lawful purposes.
3: So so is is our
1: analysis focused on how the restriction affects the individual user? That's correct, Your Honor. In looking at whether or not a law imposes a severe burden, again, at step two of the analysis, the court has asked how severe a burden the law imposes on that individual. For example, in Jackson, this court considered a San Francisco restriction that required individuals to lock up their firearms in a safe. And the court concluded that that burden was only a minimal one because it caused a few second delay in getting a firearm in the first instance. Well, here too, our law imposes at most a minimal burden, except that our law only imposes any burden after people have fired, already fired 10 shots, which is the record here shows is a very rare occurrence. Thank
0: you, Mr. Siegel. Judge Berzon, You're muted.
2: Following on Judge Pius's question, when we talk about common use, are we talking about that the guns, that the, these magazines are there or that they're used? And do we have any idea um, how often they are used in the sense that um, we have some idea in the records, I understand um, that more than, that the 10 rounds are used.
1: Well, Your Honor, I think it does look at use. And part of the inquiry is whether or not individuals actually fire more than 10 rounds in self-defense. And on that point, my friends haven't pointed to a single person in California who's actually fired more than 10 rounds in self-defense. And perhaps more importantly, Your Honor, they haven't identified a single person anywhere in the country, at least as far as we're aware, who was unable to defend himself because he had to use another gun or reload with a fresh magazine after firing 10 rounds.
2: My understanding is that um, many common guns are sold routinely with these more than 10 round LCMs. That, That doesn't necessarily mean that people are choosing them. It
1: means that's what's being sold. That's exactly correct, Your Honor. Indeed, there's very little evidence in the record here that individuals even prefer LCMs for self-defense purposes. We know that a number are sold, but we also know that almost all handguns can actually operate with a magazine of 10 rounds or less. And to Your Honor's question, again, I think one of the more remarkable parts about this record is the very few instances anywhere in the country in which my friends have identified a person who actually fired more than 10 rounds in self-defense. Thank you. Judge Akuda?
2: Thank you.
4: There have been a number of criticisms of uh, the circuit's adoption of the tiers of scrutiny approach. Uh, most notably, Judge, then Judge, now Justice Kavanaugh, in his uh, Heller 2 opinion. If we were to take the uh, opportunity to... Um, leave our tiers of scrutiny approach and take the the approach recommended by uh, Judge Kavanaugh and Judge on text, history, and tradition, looking more at categories of uh, laws that were around at the founding. Uh, How would that affect our analysis of um, Section 32310?
1: Well, Your Honor, of course, we don't think that the court should leave behind the tiers of scrutiny approach. Indeed, this and every other court of appeal to analyze the scope of the Second Amendment since Heller has used that approach. But even if the court were to focus on a text, history, and tradition approach, our laws would still prevail. And I think Judge Kavanaugh himself recognized that any inquiry into whether a law is longstanding is going to be context specific because the court needs to look at when the conduct being regulated became an issue. What we see with respect to modern LCMs is that they didn't become prevalent until the 70s or 80s, then they started causing problems, and that elicited a widespread public policy response from both states and the federal government. Now, in our view, the court could look at that and conclude that they're part of the tradition and history of regulating new and especially dangerous firearms once they became prevalent in society, similar to what we saw with machine guns at the early part of the 20th century.
4: The opposing counsel says there, uh, there were no similar restrictions until the thirties and that there had been evidence of, uh, guns firing more than one uh, round at a time, uh, since the founding. Do you disagree with that?
1: We we recognize that there were some firearms that could fire more than 10 rounds without reloading, although many of them were novelties like the puckle gun, my friends have pointed to, which I think there were a grand total of two that were ever produced. But I think the larger historical context here and what plaintiff's own expert recognized is that modern LCMs pose a materially greater threat to the public safety. They're smaller, they're lighter, they allow people to fire more rounds from a semi-automatic handgun in a shorter amount of time, which is exactly why mass shooters often prefer them to commit their crimes. So you uh,
4: disagree that they're I think, modern equivalence is how Judge uh, Kavanaugh described uh, handguns um, and other guns that were modern um, by analogy to the traditional ones. Do you, you disagree with that perception?
1: Well, Your Honor, I think Judge Kavanaugh or then Judge Kavanaugh recognized that there can be some historical analogs and you need to look at the appropriate historical analogs and see whether or not our law follows this tradition of regulating uh, new weapons once they became widespread. And your honor, that makes sense. Governments don't adopt regulations in problem, in response to problems that don't exist. But once we saw LCMs become widespread, suddenly states saw a fourfold increase in mass shootings. Police officers who used to face criminals armed with cheap Saturday night specials suddenly found themselves staring down the barrel of a Tech 9 with a 32 round magazine that's what prompted a legislative response. And again, we think that the court could look at that and conclude that this is part of the tradition and history of regulating firearms in this area. But of course, if the court disagrees with us on that point, then that merely brings it to step two under this circuit's precedent and indeed under the test that this court just reaffirmed in Young is the appropriate way of analyzing Second Amendment claims.
4: Uh, He didn't apply that in He said uh, the Second Amendment didn't cover that law, but I, I know I've used up my time
0: Judge McGill, you're muted. Uh,
5: Thank you, Mr. Siegel. You seem to strongly urge us, at least in your briefs, uh, to adopt the Fourth Circuit's reasoning in Colby uh, to hold that the large capacity magazines are most useful in military service. But um, a lot of, of The Colby court's analysis focused on comparing assault weapons to M16s and the Supreme Court in Heller made clear those were most useful in military service. I'm curious, what do we do about the fact that in this case here, we're only analyzing um, LCMs and not assault weapons?
1: So we think that the court could resolve this case at step one and follow the Fourth Circuit lead with respect to LCMs, too, when we've developed arguments in our briefs why those are also most useful in military service. But we also recognize that most court of appeals haven't ruled in our favor at step one and have gone on to step two of the analysis. And we think that would be a sensible approach for the court to adopt here as well, uh, because our law imposes a very minor burden on any individual's ability to use a firearm for self-defense and because our laws reasonably fit to our compelling public safety interests.
5: Thank you.
1: Judge Waffer?
6: Could you spend a a couple of minutes addressing the proof's takings clause claim um, in case the en banc court decides to reach that claim?
1: Yes, Your Honor, and I think the easiest way to resolve that claim is to follow the Third Circuit's lead, which rejected a takings challenge to a very similar New Jersey law. My friends argue that this is just like a direct physical appropriation of property akin to what was at issue in Horn. But that's not right. Our law allows individuals to continue to possess their magazines, although they have to modify them or bring them out of state, or they can sell them at fair market value. And for those reasons, and the fact that our law is a regulation and doesn't involve a direct transfer of property to the government, we think that the takings claim should fail.
6: What if it weren't possible to modify the magazines? And so the the, the owner's option was either hand it over to the government for destruction or to sell it. You think in that scenario, too, you would be able to, uh, to avoid takings clause liability? Well,
1: perhaps that would be a closer case, Your Honor. I still think the fact that someone could sell it or bring it out of state provides them options. And again, just makes this very different than a classic takings clause where the government takes title to the property that's not what's been alleged in this case now perhaps if some other individual came along and said i can't modify my lcm they might have a different case that might be harder for us to defend but at least as a facial matter with respect to the plaintiffs here they haven't alleged that their magazines that they'd like to hold on to fit that category
6: how how help me um, understand how easy is, is it to modify a magazine so that
1: so there isn't a lot of evidence in the record on this, but in our reply supplemental brief for the en banc court, we've cited to a website that can take you to videos that show exactly how easy it is. It costs about six or seven dollars to get the filler, six or seven dollars to get the fillers. And there are videos. This is a do it by yourself, uh, add epoxy, add in the filler to modify the magazine. It's pretty simple.
6: And so your view is that by modifying it, what, the, the owner... Retains enough of the economic value of this piece of personal property that it avoids uh, a regulatory taking? Is that
1: the idea? I think it's both that it retains enough economic value, but also that the individual gets to keep hanging on to the magazine itself, and that that magazine continues to serve its primary function of loading ammunition into a semi automatic firearm, which again just makes this very different from a program that says you have to transfer your raisins, for example, to the government. That's your only option.
6: Okay, thank you. Mr. Hurwitz? Um, uh,
7: uh, For purposes of my question, let's assume that we have to move to step two of the analysis in our case law. Um, You offer two reasons why the state wants to ban LCMs. One is that it will reduce the number of mass shootings. What evidence in the record is there from which I can conclude that it would reduce the number of incidents?
1: I would point the court to the study or report from uh, Dr. Clarivas. It's about pages 360 to 365 of the excerpts of record, who looked at those jurisdictions that had LCM restrictions in place between 1990 and 2017 and compared it to jurisdictions that didn't have LCM uh, restrictions in place during that same time per- period. And he concluded that on a per capita basis, the states and jurisdictions that had those laws saw a 79% lower rate of mass shootings than those that did not. Your is Honor, it,
7: and, is that a statistically reliable analysis or are we just dealing with better states in the uh, in the comparators?
1: Your Honor, I think it is a statistically reliable analysis. Indeed, Dr. Clorivas took the study that he did for us in this case and got it published in a peer-reviewed uh, journal, the American Journal of Public Health. And we've cited that in our supplemental brief to the en banc court. But beyond that, Your Honor, when applying intermediate scrutiny in cases like Jackson and Pena and Fayok, the court's been very clear that the legislature is entitled to rely on any evidence it reasonably believes to be relevant. And when applying intermediate scrutiny, the court's role is limited to ensuring that the government's choice is a reasonable inference based on substantial evidence.
7: Let me me just ask one follow-up question on this because I know my time is limited. Could you review for me what the evidence is in the record? Regarding the minimization of fatalities or injuries that might occur from having being forced to reload after shooting 10 shots.
1: Right. So there are a couple of things, Your Honor. As an empirical matter, Dr. Clarivas' study uh, shows, again, that the number of people who die in mass shootings in those jurisdictions that have these laws is lower. I think it's about 100 percent lower than places that do not. But in addition to that, Your Honor, we've seen countless examples of instances where people have escaped when a shooter reloaded, as happened at Sandy Hook Elementary School, where nine children literally pushed their way past their would-be attacker when he stopped to reload or where people have intervened when the shooter reloaded as bystanders did in Tucson, Arizona, when the shooter who killed Chief Judge John Roll and five others stopped to reload.
0: Judge Nelson. Um,
8: uh, Judge Okuda had asked you about the tears of scrutiny and one of your responses was all the other courts of appeals uh, have applied it, but Heller didn't apply
1: uh, tears of scrutiny, correct? Not in the context of that case, Your Honor. But I think this court and others have looked at Heller and its express recognition that the Second Amendment isn't an absolute right. It's express invocation of the First Amendment and the free speech clause in particular. And it's express invocation of the traditional standards of scrutiny and concluded that application of those traditional standards of scrutiny is appropriate in the Second Amendment context, just as it is in the First Amendment context, the equal protection context, and many other areas of constitutional law.
8: But there's also other areas of law like the Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, where we where the Supreme Court has uh, no court has applied tiers of scrutiny. So what is what is the what is the basis? Are we just adopting that from the First Amendment or is there what is the basis in the Second Amendment? Is there something unique about the Second
1: Amendment that requires a tiers of scrutiny analysis? Well, it comes somewhat from the First Amendment and this court's recognition that the First Amendment and Second Amendment share many parallels. But I think the broader jurisprudential point here, Your Honor, is that we look at certain rights and apply this kind of analysis when when looking at what the degree of harm that could be visited upon society from an unrestrained exercise of the right. So, for example, in the First Amendment context, if we interpreted the free speech clause to allow people to play music as loudly as they want in a park or protest right outside someone else's home, well, that would be pretty harmful to our societal interests. And that's why in that context, the court has looked at whether the re- challenged restriction in the free speech context leaves open alternative means for communication. And when it does, it applies a less demanding standard of scrutiny. The same thing makes sense here in light of Heller's recognition that the second amendment right isn't absolute.
8: But can't you get to, uh, can't you have restrictions when looking at the tradition and text and history? Meaning if it's not protected by the history and, and tradition, then that shows that it's not an, uh, an unlimited
1: right. Well, Your Honor, this court has applied that part of Heller at step one of the analysis, but it hasn't read Heller to say that there can't be any inquiry at step two about whether the law imposes a severe burden on the ability to use firearms for self-defense or whether or not there's some sort of standards of scrutiny that can be satisfied in a particular case. And again, that isn't just the conclusion of this court. It's the co- conclusion of every court of appeals to squarely address the scope of the Second Amendment since Heller. Well, wait, doesn't that just play
8: into the uh, criticism that the courts of appeals are not faithfully
1: applying Heller? Uh, that they've adopted these tiers of scrutiny when Heller never did? Respectfully, Your Honor, we disagree. We think that the courts have faithfully applied Heller. And again, it's express invocation of the traditional standards of scrutiny and its indication at footnote 27 that rational basis isn't appropriate in this context. Uh, and again, it's consistent with the way that we analyze other constitutional rights. No
8: further
0: questions. Thanks.
1: Judge Van Dyke.
9: The chief should Judge Boomete go first. Uh, he uh, waived his question. Oh, ask. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Um, so, counsel, I want to follow up a little bit on the common use uh, questions that a few of my colleagues had. How many rounds of ammunition does the average person need to defend themselves? So
1: what the record here shows, and it's uncontroverted, is that on average, people fire between two and three shots to defend themselves. And in the vast majority of circumstances, they fire fewer than six
9: shots to defend themselves. But that's not actually, I don't think that's actually right. So, you know, I'm looking at a screen of all of us here. I don't think that it's true that all of us here will actually end up firing 2.2 shots, right, in rounds. I I should have three rounds sitting on my desk so I, because I'm going to need those. The reality is, is the statistical odds of any of us on this screen or probably anybody even listening to this is that they're you know, they're not going to have to fire any shots in their lifetime. Thank goodness. Isn't that correct? Well, Your Honor, I think the
1: record in this case shows that when individuals do fire guns in self-defense, they fire at least one no, round. Correct, something I understand, like
9: counsel. That, that's why the question was I didn't ask when they fire. I said, what's the odds that any individual person, the average person will need to fire? And I think the odds of that are point zero 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 one or so it's very low and here's why here's why i'm asking that because you rely very heavily in your briefing and today on the fact that it's very rare to need to use over 10 rounds but isn't it just extraordinarily rare that any person needs to ever use a gun and so the question i've got is that how how can you rely on the rarity of needing to use more than 10 rounds when it's already if, if, if that was a legitimate consideration that would mean that you wouldn't have a second amendment right to have any rounds because the average person is never going to need any rounds.
1: Your Honor, so the record here actually indicates, and there's some dispute about the number of times Americans use handguns to defend themselves any year. I think plaintiff's expert has indicated that it could be up to 3 million times any given year. But I think the more fundamental point is not just that people have rarely fired 10 rounds in self-defense, but that my friends haven't identified a single person in anywhere in the country who was unable to defend himself because he had to reload or grab another gun after firing 10 rounds. Indeed, this question has been litigated in courts across the country. So, so and counsel, a let me ask group, you, sorry. and
9: I'm sorry because a little short on time, but let me, let me ask you, do you think that the Second Amendment protects a person's ability to defend themselves against a group of people, um, you know, bringing deadly force against that person? Yes, Your Honor. The Second Amendment protects the
1: ability to use firearms to defend yourself, whether it's I, against one person so or Well, Counsel, one. I guess the
9: question, I, I think, yeah, I, I would agree. I think we probably all would agree with that. It's not just defend against one person. Do you think that if you had say a dozen people asserting deadly force against you, like a mob or some sort of group of people, that having a magazine with capacity over 10 rounds would, would make a difference in that situation?
1: Well, I think many people might want an LCM in that circumstance. Although it's notable again, your honor, that my friends haven't identified a single person who was unable to defend himself because he had to reload or use another gun after firing 10 rounds. I understand the thrust of the court's question. And if the court is asking about a circumstance when you have 15, 20, 30 people coming to attack your home, I think many people would want access to not just LCMs, but also a wide variety of other weapons, including fully automatic firearms. And Heller makes clear that- well, Council, so let me
9: acts. ask just one one follow-up question about that because I think you're relying on the rarity and then you're saying, but, but the problem is is that it's also very rare, isn't it, to actually have a mass shooting, right? The main thing, so it seems like you're having a little bit of heads win, tails you lose situation where a rarity cuts against the right, you're saying, but rarity cuts in favor of your certain state interest. Or the rarity doesn't hurt you in your asserted yeah. state interest, isn't that right? You're kind of you're using rarity two different ways. You want us to treat it two different ways.
1: Well, Your Honor, even with respect to individuals who have uh, firearms and want to use them to defend their home, our law imposes a very, very small burden on their ability to fire as many rounds as they want to defend themselves, as many rounds as they need to defend themselves. At the same time. Our law restricting access to LCMs empirically is shown to reduce the frequency and lethality of mass shootings, which the state has a compelling interest in reducing the the frequency of those events. And it's principally because something like 70 percent of mass shooters acquire their firearms lawfully. So our law imposes a very minor burden, but is a very important tool in our tool belt to advancing our interest.
0: Thank you, counsel. Thank you, counsel. Uh, We'll save you can save the remainder of your time for rebuttal. Uh, and before we start, Ms. Murphy, i uh, talked talk to Kwame and Wayne. We've got a pop-up on the screen that blocks my view of uh, four of the judges. So if you could attend uh, to that, if possible, that would be great.
6: I'll uh, fix that.
0: Okay. okay. Thank you. Uh, you may proceed with uh, your argument, Ms. Murphy.
10: Sorry, I was having a momentary problem unmuting there. <laughs> Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Aaron Murphy on behalf of the plaintiffs. California's confiscatory magazine ban is unconstitutional twice over. What the state labels large-capacity magazines plainly satisfy the test that Heller articulated for determining what the Second Amendment protects. For tens of millions of magazines with the capacity of more than 10 rounds are possessed by law-abiding individuals for lawful purposes. Because the Constitution protects the right to keep these magazines, California may not flatly ban their possession. Contrary to what you've heard this morning, the state has identified no widespread historical tradition whatsoever of restricting the firing capacity of firearms or feeding devices, let alone of restricting that capacity to 10. To the contrary, California's ban is an outlier even today, as 41 states don't restrict magazine capacity at all. Several of those that do, moreover, at least grandfather in magazines that were lawfully acquired before their ban took effect, as Congress did with the brief experiment with a federal magazine ban. California, by contrast, could not even content itself with a prospective ban, but now insists that law-abiding citizens dispossess themselves of magazines that they lawfully acquired more than a quarter century ago. Far from reflecting the kind of narrow tailoring that the Supreme Court has repeatedly admonished even intermediate scrutiny requires that complete and confiscatory ban strikes at the very heart of the disarmament concerns of the Second Amendment and violates the Takings Clause to boot. I welcome the court's questions.
0: First question goes to Judge Van Dyke.
9: Thank you, Chief. Counsel, a little bit more on this, uh, on the uh, common use. It seems to me like a, you know, the state is relying on, I think primarily on mass shootings. And I I don't believe this is state has, has tried to show that mass shootings actually are, are a very common occurrence or actually account for hardly any of the harm from misuse of of firearms. It seems like implicitly what they're saying is that they must be saying, well, the mass shootings. I mean, mass shootings are very tragic and they're very high profile. Um, what role should that play in in our consideration of of how much harm or, you know, the state's interest? The fact that you know, maybe when you step back from them, it's not super. Uh, there's not, you know, the incremental harm is not that great, but it is very high profile and people have strong feelings about it. <laughs>
10: Sure. I think Heller speaks to the question of what the court should do with evidence that particular types of arms are predominantly chosen by those who want to use them to commit atrocities or other crimes. And Heller says that that's not the kind of thing that can override the rights of law-abiding citizens to keep those arms that are protected by the Constitution. The focus that, you know, the Heller focused the constitutional analysis on Are particular arms commonly possessed for lawful purposes like self-defense? Not commonly used in the sense of how often do you fire them. Are they commonly possessed... typically for the purposes like lawful uh, lawful purposes like self-defense. If they are, they're constitutionally protected. And the fact that criminals may choose to use the same types of weapons as law-abiding citizens is not a justification for prohibiting the people from keeping them. And if it were, Heller would have come out differently because there was far stronger evidence in Heller that handguns are the predominant weapon of choice for those who want to commit crimes that handguns are more likely to be stolen than long guns the court didn't question the empirical value of that evidence it just concluded that that's not the kind of evidence that can can sustain the draconian measure of an actual outright prohibition on protecting something that the constitution on possessing something that the constitution protects thank
9: you counsel i don't have any more questions judge nelson
0: You are muted, Judge Nelson. There we go. Uh, Heller did
8: not apply uh, any tiers of scrutiny. Um, but could you respond to counsel's uh, argument that it implicitly only reject it implicitly left the door open for tears of scrutiny and only rejected rational basis? And, you know, citing to footnote 27 in the opinion.
10: Sure. So, you know, I mean, I, I, on its face, Heller doesn't squarely address the question of, of scrutiny beyond saying you can't have rational basis scrutiny. But I think the thrust of the opinion is, as, as Ben Judge Kavanaugh explained in great detail in his Heller II dissent, very consistent with an approach that focuses on text history and tradition rather than a tears of scrutiny approach. And if you go back to the oral argument in Heller, several of the justices expressed some concern about the idea of using the, the term to the words the Chief Justice used and kind of importing the baggage of the First Amendment into the Second Amendment context and suggested that maybe we could have a more Uh, simplistic approach that focuses on text history and tradition. So I do think that that approach is more consistent with the approach that Heller itself used in determining uh, how to look at restrictions on Second Amendment rights. But I also think just as in Heller, this particular case is really an easy case for purposes of what, how you think about what level of scrutiny or what approach to apply analytically, because all roads lead to the same conclusion. I mean, as a historical matter, there's just no historical tradition in this country of having capacity restrictions or any really type of kind of quantitative restrictions on how much ammunition or how much capacity or how many firearms. Those types of things are just totally antithetical to the Second Amendment and really are what those disarmament concerns were about. And if you think about it in terms of scrutiny, as the Supreme Court has reminded in at least four cases over the past decade, even in intermediate scrutiny, you need to be narrowly tailored. You need to at least have considered other less restrictive means and an outright prohibition, even to the point of confiscating arms from people who lawfully acquired them. Is, is really the polar opposite. It's, it's, by definition, the most restrictive means of coming at it to say we're going to take something the Constitution says you has a right to keep and instead say that it's now illegal for you to possess it.
8: Uh, and just one more question. The, the response to some of the his, historical analysis is these kind of uh, large capacity magazines didn't become an issue until the 1970s. So the history, therefore, doesn't apply. Number one, do you agree with that? And number two, if that's true, then what kind of leeway do we give them under Heller's suggestion that long regulated uh, laws are not going to be overturned? If they waited 30 years to regulate it, as it seems to be the case here, is that does that automatically sink their case or or uh, is that rational to look at it and say this is consistent with regulating a problem that only recently arose.
10: Sure. So we absolutely do not agree with that history. I mean, the Puckle Gun may have been a novelty, but, you know, the Winchester rifles of the 1860s were not. The 1866 Winchester came on the market in 1866, the same year the 14th Amendment was sent to the states for ratification. It had a 17 round magazine with one in the chamber and was expressly marketed to civilians as able to fire all 18 rounds in under nine seconds. So, and, you know, there were millions of Winchesters sold over the next several decades. That's just the 19th century. If you trace pistols you 'll find the same thing I mean the earliest double double barrel a uh, double stack style magazine was the browning high power back in one thousand nine hundred and thirty five with a thirteen round magazine. It was so popular it remained in manufacture until two thousand and eighteen so we completely disagree with this notion that they you know, the idea of magazines with a capacity of more than 10 rounds that can actually fire at rounds quickly is some novelty Uh, but even if you accepted the proposition that you start the historical analysis in 1979 i mean these laws are not widespread even today 41 states don't have magazine capacity restrictions so i don't see how the state could say that there's some you know overwhelming response that these are the kinds of things that people that that need to be kept out of the hands of the people when most of the states in the country haven't made that judgment that stands in stark contrast if you look at say the history of machine guns which came on the civilian market in 1925 and were prohibited by 28 states within two years, and the federal government effectively had prohibited them four years later. That's how the people respond when something comes on the market that's materially different in kind in a way that makes it dangerous and unusual in this in a manner that's consistent with that common law tradition. Judge Hurwitz, could,
7: is there some number be, be above which large capacity magazines could be regulated in your view?
10: I think there is, Your Honor. I, what is, what I, is I, it? What is it? I think once you start to get above 50 rounds, you know, you, those are the kinds of magazines that I suspect the state would have a very easy time showing are not commonly possessed by the people for law-abiding purposes. I mean, there's not a record that specifically focuses on that subset of magazines because the state chose to set the number well below what is common and standard issue with many of the most popular firearms in the country. But once you get above that, what you actually find is you know, they tend to be magazine feeding devices that are that are different kind of in kind from what is standard issue. I mean, most of the magazines that people possess in the country that are more than 10 rounds are box style magazines. For handguns, they're going to be around 10, to, you know, between 10 and 20 rounds typically. For, for popular rifles like the AR-15, they're 15 or 30 rounds. Okay, I, think, now, I think,
7: you, think you've answered my question. Let me ask you a different question. Let's assume that we are applying tiered analysis and we get past step one. Um, Do you agree that the record demonstrates that when people are must reload, because I think your 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 argument in this case is largely about the Second Amendment right to reload less often. Uh, When people reload in mass shootings, there are demonstrated instances where lives have been saved.
10: Uh, We we don't think that the evidence is at all conclusive on that.
7: What about what about 2 I'm not saying conclusive. I asked you, is there's evidence that this occurs? is isn't there's, there's that precisely what occurred in Tucson?
10: There's evidence of, uh, of, of a couple of incidents, Tucson, and there's evidence, and we have a rebuttal expert explained that it's actually not conclusive that that's what occurred in, okay, but in Tucson. Okay,
7: But I didn't uh, ask about conclusive. This is why I'm asking the question. Is the state entitled to rely on evidence that's less than conclusive if it shows that lives will be saved?
10: I mean, the state's entitled to rely on it, but we're entitled to put on, as we did, rebuttal witnesses who point out the flaws in the state's evidence. And we did have witnesses here who explained why the evidence with respect to what the state has claimed is very, very thin. And I do think that when the state is going to the absolute most restrictive means possible, it's incumbent on the state not just to come up with, you know, hypothetical, theoretical possible ways that laws could be useful, as the state's own expert said, you know, the best we can say about this law is that it has the potential to have a of effects. I mean, if the state wants to go with the most draconian means, I think it needs to produce uh, evidence that's that's a little closer to conclusive.
6: Thank you, Judge Wafford. Uh, I don't know that our court will reach it in this case, but I am interested in your takings clause claim. I hope you could respond to what your opponent said, and in particular, just the. The availability, the ready availability of a a means to modify uh, magazines that people already possess as, as as perhaps being fatal to your claim. I'd love to hear your response to that. Sure.
10: So I don't don't think that argument is meaningfully different from the argument that the Supreme Court rejected in Horn and before that in Loretto, that to say that the only way you can keep your property is by essentially physically permanently modifying it into something other than what you obtained is really no answer at all to the concern that you're saying that you, you can no longer possess it. I mean, in Horn, it was, if you don't want us to take your raisins, then turn them into wine. In Loretto, it was, you know, if you don't want a CATV box on top of your building, then stop renting it out to other people. And the, the words the court used in both opinions were property rights are not that manipulable. So I don't think it's a matter of how easy it is to alter or destroy your property. It's a matter of, has the state left you with any means? Through which you can continue to possess what it is that you acquired, and if not, I think you have a physical taking. Um, and you know, but just just to you know, give you an example of just that, I find helpful in thinking about it. I mean, if you take Lucas, and if you had, if it had been, if instead of saying that you know the Lucases couldn't build a house on their property, South Carolina had said you have to tear down the house you already built. I mean, I don't think anyone would think there wasn't a physical taking just because they didn't say, and we're also going to take the property on which you built it.
6: Yeah. But I mean, the, it, let's just I mean, if we reject your Second Amendment claim and so that there is no freestanding constitutional right to have a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds, um, you're I mean, if you if you possess a magazine now that, let's say, holds 20 rounds, you can modify it to hold 10. It's still going to function for the most part in the way that uh you know, the, for the reason that you originally acquired it. So it's not like you had to tear down the house. You still have the thing. You still found the weapon that you already possess. And so I guess I don't see why how, how there's a parallel
10: there. I, I mean, I guess I would think of it, you know, I think to a magazine owner, it's a little bit like saying you have two houses and you only had to tear down one. So the fact that you've still got one means that you still possess enough of your property that we don't consider it dispossession. I mean, if they bought a magazine that has a 10 round, a, a, you know, a 20 round capacity, And the the law says you have to permanently alter it, effectively destroy half of the property that you purchased. I don't think that that's the kind of law that when you look at the cases the state is relying on, you know, those are principally regulatory cases that are dealing with you can't use your property in a particular manner. This isn't saying you can't use it. I mean, it, it says you must if you want to keep it, you have to permanently alter it in a way that destroys part of the property. I think that is best understood as a physical taking, which is a categorical taking that requires compensation. Okay.
0: Thank you.
5: Thank you. Ms. Murphy, uh, a lot of the district court's analysis in this case was focused on the fact that large capacity magazines are necessary for self-defense in the home. Um, but as you're aware, the state presented evidence that on average, I think it was only 2.2 rounds are discharged in situations where an individual uses deadly force and self-defense so what what's your response to that i i, I really i'm not sure that I, I, it was convincing that the district court's analysis that it might need uh, where you said it might need more than 10 rounds to defend themselves and that those individuals might not have other magazines available for self-defense what, what's your what's your response to the state's evidence Sure, I mean I have a couple responses, you
10: know, one, one that's more legal and I guess one that's a little more factual, but you know, as a legal matter, I mean the, the right is not a right that focuses on exactly how you need to use your firearm, it's a right that focuses on, uh, whether the firearm or whether the magazine is something that is commonly possessed possessed for the purpose of lawful self-defense and if if it's you know you're talking about magazines that people have decided are the types of magazines that they need to have in their home for the purpose of self-defense i don't think the second amendment really lets the state come in and say to them you know what you don't really need that much capacity or that much ammunition or that many firearms or whatever it may be I mean when you're in the realm of constitutionally protected things the second amendment leaves it to individuals to decide what it is that they think will best suit their self-defense needs now as a factual matter you know i do think this also runs into the problem that uh that the state's counsel was exploring with the court earlier in that it's very rare to need to use the firearm at all in most in mean, even in instances when you need to use the firearm it's still rare that people actually fire the firearm so by the state's logic I don't really know where the stopping point is. I mean, I'm not sure why that wouldn't justify a restriction down to five or down to two or really down to one since most people don't need to fire. I think that's precisely why, you know, it, it reflects the wisdom of the framers in deciding that it's not for the government to decide just how much firepower people need to be able to defend themselves as long as we're in the realm of things that are protected by the Second Amendment.
5: But, uh, the state also presented uh, evidence that LCMs pose a, a, a particular danger to law enforcement. Um, what, what's your response to that? Sure. I
10: mean, we certainly have an an empirical responses to that. I'd point you again to our expert witness, Dr. uh, Professor Kleck, who, who was basically a rebuttal witness, explained the flaws in some of the methodology of the statistics the court came up with. But I would also point you back to, again, I don't think that argument is materially different from the argument that the District of Columbia was making in Heller when they said, Handguns, as compared to long guns, pose a particular risk. They have greater lethality. They are chosen by criminals over long guns precisely because it's easier to use them to inflict more damage. And the Supreme Court said, at least when it comes to a complete ban on possession, that's not a good enough reason for the state to say that the people cannot keep what the Constitution protects.
5: But I thought uh, the state presented evidence uh, that LCM-equipped firearms constituted 41% of the firearms used in, in murders of police and that LCMs are overrepresented in gun violence against law enforcement when compared to their use in gun crime generally. What, what, what was the response to that by, by, by the plaintiffs? sure
10: I, I you know our statistical you know, our statistical expert explained why there were flaws in arriving at that as over representative i mean these are magazines that as our expert on possession explained account for roughly half the magazines in the country uh, so you know you have to kind of have all the pieces right to arrive at the conclusion of whether something is being disproportionately used it's also a study from i believe it's a study that Predates the 1994 uh, restriction. And I think, you know, if you look at the state's own e- uh, expert, Dr. Koper, and the report that he did in the wake of the 1994 federal experiment with the magazine ban, what he found was that it didn't end up having any meaningful impact on uh, the, the volume of crime, the lethality of crime, or any of these things that the state has articulated as what are, of course, uh, interest, uh, important and compelling interests. Thank you, Ms. Burford.
0: Judge Akudan? Thank
10: you.
4: so in the First Amendment context, um, the Supreme Court has told us that uh, the the government has the burden of proof to show uh, that the restriction on the First Amendment is justified. Who has the burden of proof in the Second Amendment context?
10: I think the government bears the burden of proof on all aspects of the analysis here, uh, starting right off the bat with whether this is protected, because Heller says that all things that constitute bearable arms are prima facie protected by the Second Amendment. And then as you go on to the question of if you have something protected, whether we're within, you know, even if you're applying tiers of scrutiny, I think it's always the government's burden to demonstrate that something is narrowly tailored, whether you're under strict or intermediate scrutiny. So if we were in tears of scrutiny, one of
4: the arguments raised is that the limitation on the magazines is a time, place, or manner restriction. Now obviously it's not a time or place restriction. Why isn't it a manner restriction?
10: I don't think it's a manner restriction because it's not a restriction on how you can go about keeping or carrying the magazine or the firearm. It's not like say a safe safe storage law or a requirement to keep the trigger lock on or to keep, you know, the firearm locked up if you're transporting it. It's a requ- it's a restriction on what you can keep in the home. And keeping firearms is the core protection of the Second Amendment. So when you're saying there's a type of arm that the Constitution protects, but you can't keep it at all... I don't think you can conceptualize that as a manner restriction. It has nothing to do with the manner in which you keep it. It has to do with whether you can keep it in the first place. I think it's actually kind of better analogized in that sense to a content-based restriction when you're saying there's a certain type of speech that you just can't engage in. We wouldn't say that that's a manner restriction, then as long as you can engage in all sorts of other types of speech, you have enough outlets left, and we don't really care that one type of protected speech is off the table. Here, too, if you're in the realm of constitutional Constitutionally protected arms. I don't think it's for the state to try and create some hierarchy of which arms it thinks are entitled to more or less of that protection.
4: Thank you.
0: Judge, Berza. Judge Berzan, you're still muted. The You're still muted. Okay. There you go. Thank okay.
2: you. Um, it's just difficult to find the unmute button. Um,
5: so, to follow
2: up for a moment I judge this, uh, inquiry, um, the First Amendment analogies, it seems to me, are good for some purposes and not others, and the content based analogy. Uh, perhaps as an example of what's not useful, um, what we have here um, is you can have ten bullets, and you can right. The question is whether you can have ten bullets in one magazine um, to use them um, in, uh, in in quick succession. Um, that does seem to me to be something like a manner of restriction. Why not?
10: no yes so i i, I don 't I, I mean I, I think that trying to isolate kind of the magazine and or the ammunition from the firearm just doesn 't really work in this context because as long as you 're talking about something that 's essential to the functionality of the firearm, I think you have to think about the firearm as a whole, and if a firearm with a capacity to fire 10 rounds is something that's protected, I don't think the state can kind of get around that by saying, okay, well, we'll just put some restrictions on, you know, the amount of the ammunition that you can have or the type of magazine that you can put into it. I think you think about that as the type of arm and whether it's a type of arm that's protected or not. And historically, I mean, far from treating the increases in capacity as some startling thing that generated, you know, the need for everyone to come in and pass a bunch of laws restricting capacity, the American people have welcomed innovations in firearms technology that figured out ways to increase capacity without sacrificing any of those features that make arms particularly well-suited for self-defense, which is not to say people just want capacity at all costs. High-capacity magazines, you know, what I think we could all agree are high-capacity, things with 50, 7,500 rounds, I mean, they're not not common because they're not available. There's just never been the same kind of market for them, presumably because they typically involve feeding devices that are large and heavy and more cumbersome and that people haven't found as suited for self-defense purposes.
2: To expand the discussion into the cheers um, versus um, history, text history and tradition, I is as far as I can tell, Heller used text history tradition to delineate the right, but not to determine whether any particular firearm um, or, or mode of use of firearm um, is uh, acceptable to the Second Amendment. Is that right? Where, where in, in Heller can you find that Griffiths kind of a standard as the way one determines? Uh, the application to any particular firearm or ammunition
10: and so on. I'm not sure I disagree with you. I think the test that Heller articulated for determining whether an arm is protected is whether it's commonly possessed by the people for lawful purposes like self-defense. And Heller made quite clear that that test is not frozen in time historically and that, you know, just because something wasn't commonly possessed or even available in 1779 or 1868 doesn't mean that it's not protected. But I think the way Heller, you know, maybe in the same way you'd think about uh, kind of applying Fourth Amendment standards to modern day interests or technology, Heller said, the test has always been commonly possessed for lawful purposes. And of course, as technology evolves, different things are going to be commonly possessed for lawful purposes. So we keep applying the same test, but we may reach different outcomes.
2: But that, one of the Court of Appeals called the popularity test, and it seems like an awfully weak way um, to determine the reach of a constitutional provision. Uh, And particularly in this instance, in which there are commercial interests um, that may well be determining what is commonly possessed because it's what's commonly sold. Uh, and there's something about a disconnect between what people possess because uh, it's what's being sold to them and what they would choose
10: uh, if they had every uh, if, if, if that weren't the case well with respect i i don't think history or current practice bears out that intuition i mean there are feeding devices that have been available for 150 years that have capacities well in excess of what is standard issue with firearms today yet you don't see firearms on the market coming standard issue with 100 round drums or 75 round belt chains of ammunition because the people don't want them. I mean, I, I don't think that the magazines that are out there are at the capacity they are because the manufacturers have decided that's what we think people should have. If the people all wanted something higher and didn't think it got in the way of functionality, I'm sure manufacturers would be selling more of it. Conversely, it's not like there aren't firearms on the market that have less than 10 rounds. We're not, certainly not saying that 100% of the things that people purchase today come standard issue with a magazine capacity of more than 10 rounds, or that's what the choice that everyone makes. We're simply saying that when roughly half the magazines in circulation, tens of millions, have a capacity of more than 10 rounds, That's far above whatever the threshold is for commonly possessed for lawful purposes. And at that point, it's not for the state to tell someone, you know what, you really only need 10 rounds, not 12. Thank you.
0: Judge Paez.
3: Thank you, Chief. Um, Ms. Murphy, I just want to clarify one thing you said. I want to make sure I understand or maybe I misunderstood what you said. And that's, uh, you, you suggested a moment ago that the state would have the burden throughout. Doesn't, doesn't the plaintiff have wouldn't the plaintiff have some burden initially? For example, so I, applying tiers of scrutiny, wouldn't the wouldn't the plaintiff have have some burden to make an initial showing of it? Yeah. ultimately the state that has to, to ultimately defend and come forward with some evidence or something, but it seems to me odd to say that the state has the burden
10: throughout. So I, I think that the burden, the, the burden on a, a plaintiff when it comes to a restriction on a type of arm, is to demonstrate that it's a bearable arm. And at that point, the language of Heller says that all things that constitute bearable arms are prima facie protected by the Second Amendment. So if you've got a bearable arm, it's prima facie protected. And I do think at that point it's the state's burden. You know, once something's prima facie, you've got to shift the burden back. So the state is the one that should have to come forward and show that it's not something that's commonly possessed and that it's, in fact, something that's dangerous, unusual. Now, that said, I don't think on that particular question that it really matters here who bears the burden of proof because the only evidence in the record at all came from us, and we have an expert report who looked at all of the information on that and found common use. Thank you. Judge Graber? No questions. Thank you.
0: Uh, Nor do I. So, Ms. Murphy, you, you may sum up.
10: Uh, Thank you, Your Honor. Just to conclude, we would note that as as to uh, to end where I began, what we're talking about here are magazines that are commonly possessed all throughout the country are legal in 41 of the 50 states. They are possessed for law-abiding purposes like self-defense. And there is no historical tradition in this country of having the kind of restrictions the state has in mind here of telling people that there's a certain amount of firepower or capacity that's appropriate for them to possess. Given that these are arms that the Constitution protects, the right to keep, California may not absolutely prohibit the people from possessing them. Thank
0: you. <laughs> we'll hear
1: a rebuttal. Your Honor, I have four points I'd like to make in rebuttal. First, today you've heard my friend invoke Heller and its conclusion that states can't ban access to handguns even though they are used in crime. But the court there was dealing with an unusually severe law, one that completely banned possession of the quintessential weapon for self-defense, the handgun. And as Heller explains, that law couldn't be sustained under any level of scrutiny, both because it was a historical outlier and because as a practical matter, there are many features of handguns that make it especially well-suited to self-defense. But this court has never understood Heller to say that that is the end of the inquiry, and that the court can't consider alternative means for self-defense in scrutinizing Second Amendment claims. Brings me to my second point, with respect to the appropriate Second Amendment test. Ms. Murphy again argues that our law violates Heller simply because there are a lot of LCMs in circulation throughout the country. Indeed, I think you heard her say that if there were a lot of 50-round magazines in circulation throughout the country, laws banning those uh, magazines would violate the Second Amendment as well. But Heller didn't adopt that common use test, and this court hasn't understood Heller as adopting that common use test. Instead, it is properly understood that the constitutional test involves a two-step inquiry that asks, in part, whether the challenged law leaves open alternative means for self-defense. And for the reasons we've discussed today, our law imposes a very minor burden on anyone's ability to use a firearm for self-defense. That brings me to my third point, which is the severity of the burden. You didn't hear my friend argue that our law imposes a severe burden on anyone's ability to defend themselves with a firearm. Ms. Murphy talked a bit about the possibility that a person might need to fire more than 10 rounds in self-defense. But what you didn't hear her say is identify a single person in California who's actually fired more than 10 rounds in self-defense. And you didn't hear her identify a single person anywhere in the country who's actually been unable to defend themselves because they had to use another gun or reload after firing 10 rounds. On this record, the speculation advanced by my friend and her expert is not enough to establish the type of severe burden that would invoke or warrant application of strict scrutiny. Finally, Your Honor, you heard my friend argue that under intermediate scrutiny, we need to offer conclusive evidence to sustain our law. But that's not right. In Pena, as in Judge Graber's concurrence in Peruda, this court indicated that under intermediate scrutiny, when the court is applying that standard in the face of conflicting or even inconclusive legislative evidence, the court's role is to defer to the state's reasonable choice about the best way to address the deadly serious problem of mass shootings. With that, Your Honor, we would submit.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Thank both of you for your arguments this morning. And the briefing has been very helpful to the court. And we, the case just heard will be submitted for decision. We'll be in recess. And for the judges on the line, uh, it will take Judge Hurwitz and I about five minutes to get to the room. So we'll take a recess for five minutes.
6: This court for this session stands adjourned.